Revelation 13, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10 is what we're going to be covering tonight. John goes on and says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Now, we've been looking at this beast now for a few weeks in our study of Revelation. And this, this beast is the last one world power which will rule over the whole world before Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom forever and ever. This beast is connected to and empowered by who? Satan. And, and, his, and it's his last attempt, you're going to see, at conquest over the whole world. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through, uh, verse 13 through chapter 13, verse 1. Revelation 12, verse 13. It says, And when the dragon, we saw last time we were together, the dragon is Satan. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And we saw already again, that was Israel from earlier studies. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And we're going to come back to the description of, of this beast in just a second. But look down at what it says in verse, uh, verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So to make sure that we're all together, because all the way through our study, we've been seeing this animal, this beast, this dragon with seven heads and ten, ten horns. And, and at sometimes the dragon is described as Satan. Other times it's described as a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And it's the one world kingdom. But you're going to also see the Antichrist described as the beast. So to make sure that we're all together and where we are is that at the end of time, and I'm going to lay this out for you a little bit more tonight, there's going to be this one last one world government, one world power on the face of the earth, which controls the face of the earth. It's going to be made up of ten kingdoms that have come together, ten kings have come together. One of the kings is going to come up from within and remove three of the others, and all the other kings are going to give their authority to this one individual. 
And then when Satan at the midpoint of the tribulation is cast down to the earth because of the battle between him, him and his angels that we saw last time we were together and Michael and his angels, he actually comes in and dwells the Antichrist who's in charge of this one world government. And so this beast that we see, that we see described here, this beast is the one last world government which Daniel prophesied about. And we're going to take a look at that. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. You see, because back in Daniel chapter 7, he was given a vision of four beasts. And when we take a look at Daniel's vision of the four beasts in chapter 7, it will help us understand what's going on here in Revelation 13. In Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 8. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. Keep that in mind. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which, before which of the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So Daniel sees four beasts in his vision. The first one is like a what? Like a lion. And that's Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon that ruled the world at that time. And if you even see a lot of the architecture of Babylon in that area, you see lots of the lions and those types of things. But then after the lion came a beast that looked like a what? A bear. And that's Medo-Persia. And they came in and conquered Babylon. And Medo-Persia was the one world power. And then there was another one which looked like a what? A leopard. And that's Greece, folks. And then, as you know, uh, the Greece kingdom and Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided to his four kings afterwards. And you see in the prophecy here at the end of the part about the, the leopard, uh, verse 6, And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And Alexander's kingdom was actually divided into four kingdoms over to his generals at the end of his time. But then he sees a fourth beast now. He's seen the beast, if you will, of the one world power of Babylon. He's seen the beast, if you will, of the one world power of Medo-Persia. And he's seen the one of Greek, Greece. But now he sees a fourth beast now. And this one is exceedingly terrifying. And the only way he can even describe it is to say that it was just fierce. And it just trampled everything in front of it. Now go with me back to Revelation chapter 13. What else do we know, by the way, from Daniel about the fourth beast? What else did he tell us about it? Iron teeth and what? Stomps on stuff. And what else do we know about it? It had ten horns. And then, as you know, one of the, another horn came up and removed three. But now take a look at Revelation 13 again now. At the end, we saw chapter 12. Satan had been cast to the earth. 
He goes after Israel. Israel's protected in the wilderness for two and a half years. He goes now to make war against anybody else that believes in God. And he stands on the shore of the sea. And out of the sea comes this beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with, here we see it now, ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, or crowns, if you will, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Do you see it? It has similarities to these other kingdoms that existed at that time that Daniel saw in his vision. But this one was different. And then he goes on and says, And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? By the way, we're going to come back to that section tonight at the end of our study. I can't wait to get to that section because it's something pretty cool I can't wait to show you. But we'll get to that in a little bit. <clears throat> As for this, one of the heads having a mortal wound, which either didn't kill it or it came back to life. We're going to go into that in a lot more detail later on in our study, not tonight. I'll just tell you that for tonight. There's a study thing that's going to come out later on that will help us with that. So we're going to leave that part alone for now. But this beast, this Antichrist and his one world power will go after everyone left on the earth who believes in God and Jesus. And that's what's going to happen. So we're going to take some time right now to take a look at some of the passages that deal with that aspect. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Look again at verse 17. It says that the dragon became furious to the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of who? Jesus to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So now he's waiting for this beast to come up. And as you know, as you're going to see, he goes after all believers on the earth at that time. Look at Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, another way to describe two and a half year, three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to what? Conquer them. That's important. Keep that in your mind for later on. Go to Daniel. Actually, we're in Revelation 13 still. If you haven't turned too quick, look at verses 9 and 10. It says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to ta captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So at this point right now, we know that we're around the midpoint of the tribulation. He's gone after, the Antichrist has gone after Israel. He's killed a lot of them, but a third of them are protected in the wilderness over in Moab area in Edom. And we'll get to where that is later in our study. Again, not tonight. Since he can't get Israel because Israel's protected, we already saw how the earth actually opens up and protects whatever Satan sends after him. He now goes after everyone on the earth who is a believer in God and Jesus Christ. And look at what it says here in verse 9 again. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, I'm going to say something to you tonight that I want you to hear correctly. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get yourself a weapon. I'm all for what Sheriff Ivy said that got him in a lot of trouble all around the globe about how we should arm ourselves and citizens of the first lines of defense. 
But we also must keep in mind the truth of the word of God. You can build yourself the biggest, safest compound with all your weapons and with all your food and with all your storehouses. If you're alive, and I pray that none of us here are at that time because we're taken with him in the rapture. But if believers are going to be killed during that time, they will be. No matter how fortified they think they may be. Because we saw earlier tonight that the beast was given authority to make war against the saints and to what? And to conquer them. And that's why he says, if anyone has an ear, let me hear what I'm saying here. At this time, it's going to be bad on the earth, especially for believers. And if someone's going to go into captivity because of their faith, they're going into captivity. If someone's going to be put to death because of their faith, they're going to be put to death. Go with me to Daniel. You'll see it way back in Daniel, in the passage we were just reading. If we kept reading a little bit further, you'd see that Daniel saw the same thing in his prophecy. Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 19 through 22. He said, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which of the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Again, keep in mind, when we see saints here in Daniel and we see saints here in Revelation 13 and chapter 12, it's not talking about the church, but it's talking about tribulation saints. Just like there were Old Testament saints and they weren't part of the church, there's tribulation saints. And don't read the church into, into Revelation here. But the scripture is very clear. Daniel even saw that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to prevail over them. And so in Revelation 13, we see the same thing. Look at one more place. Look at Matthew 24. Folks, by the way, this is part of the reason why, there's many reasons why, part of the reasons why we need to know what's coming so that we can share with family and friends and to tell people, you don't want to be here when this happens. You don't want to be here when this happens. Matthew 24, look at verses 15 through 22. Jesus again says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in, in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant for, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In other words, if God didn't keep it to two and three and a half years, there wouldn't be a human on the earth that would live through this time period. That's how bad it's going to be. And by the way, does Jesus, is Jesus given to hyperbole? Does Jesus exaggerate? No, Jesus, if he said, these will be the worst days that have ever been on the earth and never will be again. Folks, I don't think we can even fathom how bad it's going to be. Go ahead. The elect are those who are going to be saved during the tribulation period. 
And you're going to see that word make a little bit more sense, hopefully later tonight. But the elect during that time are those who are going to be saved during the tribulation period. Okay. Now, I want to just stop for a second and say a couple of things about this. One, first of all, thank God for his promise in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, you remember in all the messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, he gives them promises. And he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, and you can go back and take a look for it yourself and see it. He says, I'm going to spare you from the hour, keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come across the whole earth. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's further evidence of the fact that the church will be removed. Not because we're escapists and we're just trying to get away from that. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Because a lot of people will say that to you. And a lot of people are starting to say something else about us. Which I'm going to clarify for you in just a second as well. But let me just say first of all. The purpose of God rapturing His church is not to just get us out of here and protect us. For too long Christians have talked about how we're going to be spared. But the reason why he's removing his church, there are many reasons, but one of the main reasons is, is because of the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. The restraining power of the Holy Spirit is going to be removed from the earth during that time. The Holy Spirit won't be totally removed from the earth or else no one can be saved during the tribulation because of that part of Spirit's work, no one can be saved. But he's removing his restraining. The Bible talks about that in Thessalonians, how he who restrains is going to be removed or taken out of the way before the man of lawlessness is revealed. Why we're taken out of here is not because God's going to rescue us. It's because he's doing a work on the earth. A prophecy that he made to the nation of Israel back in Daniel chapter 9, and we looked at that a while back in verses 20 through 27, how 77s are decreed, decreed for Israel in the holy city of Jerusalem to accomplish all these things. And there's one last seven year period to occur. And for that to happen, he's going to remove his restraining act on the earth through the removing of the Holy Spirit through the work of the church. The reason we're going is not because we're being spared, although he is keeping us from the hour of trial. The reason we're being removed is his Holy Spirit indwells us. And we're now on this earth as the salt and the light. And we're supposed to be being used of him to slow the decay in this world. We'll never stop it. But when we are removed, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit against evil will be gone. Now, there's something else that I just heard when I went to the prophecy conference in Dallas last week, two weekends ago with Tony. There are a bunch of Christians now who are pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. And they are very angry with those of us who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And they're making this statement. You Christians who are pre-tribulational in your rapture view of the church, you say you're for Israel, but you're really not. Because you talk about how God's going to take you off this earth and leave the Jews to go through all that. If you really love the Jews, you wouldn't think that God's going to spare you and Leave the Jews to go through it. You're not for Israel. Let me just tell you, those that are making those statements have made two wrong assumptions in making that statement. The first one is this. Go look closely at verse 7 of chapter 13. Revelation 13, look at verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war, this is the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over what? Every tribe and people and language and nation. Let me remind you of something. 
at this point, when Satan, through the Antichrist and this one world government, goes after all who believe in God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ, where will the Jews be at this time? They're going to be where? They're going to be protected. Remember, he's already gone after Israel. The Antichrist has already gone after Israel. He's had effect on some of them, but a third at least are going to be protected in the wilderness of Edom. And they're going to be, we just read that. Go back to chapter 12 and, and, and look at verse 15. Actually, verse 14. Chapter 12, Revelation 12, verse 14. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The Jews at this time are actually going to be protected by God in the wilderness. The reason he's going off to everybody else is because he can't get at the Jews anymore. God's protecting them during that time. And he's going after everyone. But there's something else even more. Folks, is our gospel that God's having us preach, is it just for us or is it also for the Jew and the Gentile? These Jews that they say that we're just going to leave here in the tribulation while we're gone, we're preaching to them now saying, you can be a part of the church. You too can be spared this wrath to come if you would believe in Jesus Christ and receive what he's done. Understand that he is the Messiah. So I just want you to understand that one of the biggest things that came out of my time in Dallas this couple weekends ago was the fact that as the world today is turning their back on Israel, Many Christians today, that number is getting larger and larger and larger. They're actually not only against Israel, they're going to be against any of us who believe in this pre-tribulational view of the rapture of the church. And they're going to say things like, you guys are just escapists. You're not really for Israel because you teach that you're going to be gone and they're going to have to suffer. And folks, I just want you to be educated with what the truth of the word of God says. We're for Israel. And we're not only for Israel, we're for the Palestinians. Because Jesus died for them as well. And I don't know if you know it or not, but God's still drawing Gentiles. And the time of the Gentiles is not over. And that means, and if you do any research, you'll find, if you see what's really going on in the globe, that God is saving Muslims today like you wouldn't believe. Thousands and tens of thousands of Muslims across the globe are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through dreams and visions and many different ways that he's drawing them. When we say we're pro-Israel, be careful. You're not anti-Palestine. God loves them just as much. So we need to make sure that we're balanced in our teaching because it's very easy to because there are so many that are against Israel to make ourselves pro-Israel that we sound like we're anti-Palestine. We're not. We're not. Jesus died for them just as much. And so, yes, sir, go ahead. Mm -hmm. They're killed. They're killed. We'll see that later on in our study. But Zechariah talks about how two-thirds will be killed and one-third will be spared during that time. All right. Yes, sir. Oh, without question. That's why Jesus said, if you're in Judea, run, because you're going to be right in the epicenter of what's going on and where he starts from. And if Jews say, eh, they're not going to make it because he's going to go after Israel. And I want you to understand something else. Why do you think Satan's going to go after Israel so bad? Anybody have any idea? Well, he knows his time is short, but why Israel? 
Why is he after Israel? Uh, more than the, just God's favorite. Uh, that's definitely what's going to happen. Go ahead. And yes, and keep in mind, he said way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Satan didn't know who that was until Jesus, of course, comes on the earth, and now he knows who it is. So what did Satan do? He tried to kill whatever seed looked like might be the one. Adam and Eve give birth to two boys, Cain and Abel. One's righteous, one's not. What, is, what does Satan do with the righteous one? He has him killed. Maybe this is the seed that's going to crush my head. I'm going to wipe him out. And then all the way through, Joseph, the favored one, tries to have him done, done away with. All the way through, you see it. We get to Genesis 6, and we even see that he decides, you know what? I'm going to have the angels, these fallen angels, come down and make babies with the humans and corrupt the seed. God has to wipe everybody on the face of the earth off except Noah and his family and start over. So the seed would not be, and he took those angels that did that, and he put them in place of, of torment and prison until the time, final judgment. So they can't do that anymore. Oh, the Bible also says that in the days of Noah, so it will be when he comes back. There may be some weird stuff going on in the spiritual realm tied to the human realm in these last days. And we'll just leave it at that because too many conspiracy theorists start coming up with stuff that's extra biblical. But all the way through, then God also makes this promise that he's going to fulfill his plan through Israel, and Satan goes after Israel. All the way through, he even says that he's going to come back and he's going to set up his kingdom where? In Israel. So Satan thinks, if I can get rid of Israel, he can't come back and set up his kingdom. His pride, his pride has so blinded him. His pride has blinded him. So why is Satan going after Israel? Because he knows God's made promises that he'll do it through that nation in that place. And he's trying to get rid of them. Now, let's keep going. Look at Revelation 13, verse 8. And look at how the scripture here describes those who worship the beast. And we're going to go into some deep theology tonight. And I just pray that the Spirit of God will help you stick with me here. Because we're going to trudge into some waters that if you go online and do any kind of study on what we're going to look at tonight, you're going to see so many different views. I'm going to hopefully be used to God to kind of lay it out for you scripturally and let you kind of uh, hopefully see what the Word of God says on this topic. Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So here we see that all those who worship the beast... Their name were never written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to take you through a study about the book of life. We could do two days on this. I'm going to try to do it in the time that we have left. Those whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb. It appears that believers' names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb since before the world was made. All right? Isn't that what the passage is saying? that their names were written in the book of life of the Lamb before the foundation of the world. And those who don't believe their names weren't written before the foundation of the world. Now, I'm going to just quickly say that there are some people that try to teach that there's two books. One's the book of life, and then there's the book of life of the Lamb. As I've studied it, I think the scripture kind of says they're the same book. So stick with me there, all right? There are some people that I respect who teach that there are two books, uh, one being Tim LaHaye. I'm not sure I agree with him because of my understanding of the scriptures. It appears that the book of life and the book of life of the, life of the Lamb are the same thing. 
But let's do a little study then. How do we deal with this? And I wrote in my notes, by a thorough Bible study of the topic in order to see all that the Scripture says on the subject and thereby, thereby get an accurate interpretation. So here's what we're going to do. Get your notepad out, and we're going to go fast. First off, there are many references throughout the Scriptures to this book of life. One of them we'll see in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Go with me to Philippians 4, 3, and listen to what it says. Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul's describing these other believers, these, all these believers whose names are in the book of life, talking about those who are saved and those who are in God's book. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, the plural, the other books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see here at the great wide throne judgment, and just to help you out, this judgment here in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11 and following, is a judgment of all the lost, all the wicked throughout all time. They're going to be brought before the great wide throne of God, and they're going to be judged according to what they have done in the books. Why? Because they didn't receive God's forgiveness for their sins that was offered through Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're going to have to pay for everything they've done. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, He'll hold us accountable for every idle word. Aren't we glad that we've been spared all of that through faith in Jesus? But they're judged according to what was written in the books, plural. And then also there's another book, which is called the book of life. And anyone's name that wasn't in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which, by the way, is everybody here at this judgment. Yes, sir? The names in the book of life, is that the 144,000? No, nope. remember the 144,000 are, are, are 144,000 male Jews that are sealed by God at the beginning of the tribulation period to go as witnesses throughout the globe. This, the people that are in the book of life, Paul said that he had fellow believers whose names are in the book of life. They weren't a part of the 144,000. They've already lived and died, you know, but the 144,000 haven't been set out yet. So that's not them. Go to Revelation 17. Look at verse 8. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast and because it was, is not, and is to come. So again, we see this description. All those who were names haven't been in the book of life since the foundation of the world, they're the ones who believe in the Antichrist. And of course, they're going to be judged because they're not in the book of life and they won't be able to go to heaven. So we see very clearly from just these three that there's a book of life. But some of these references actually describe the book as the Lamb's book of life. Look at Revelation 21. Look at verse 27. Revelation 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, talking about the new heaven and the new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Go to Revelation 13, verse 8, where we started. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So we see now that the book of life and the Lamb's book of life seem to be the same thing. So another question is then, okay, is it possible to have your name blotted out of this book? Well, actually, according to Scripture, yes. This is where I want you to stick with me here, because it appears from Revelation 13, verse 8, that their names were never written in it. Correct? Doesn't it read that way? That their names were never written in the book of life. But I'm going to show you Scripture that shows very clearly that there are times that God does remove people's names from the book of life. I told you, we're going deep. Stick with me. I can see it on your faces. I'm praying for God to give you insight tonight, so just stick with me. Don't make your assumptions, don't make your conclusions till we use all of Scripture. Remember, I've been trying to teach you over and over and over. You want a correct interpretation of the Bible, you got to know what the context says, and then you got to check it against the rest of all of Scripture. God wrote the whole book, and it all comes together. So we've gotten a few verses, and unfortunately, people take a few verses, build their theology, and they ignore other verses. So my question is this, is it possible to be blotted out of this book? I'm going to show you scripture says it is. So go to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life." I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here in the context that Jesus is writing to the church in Sardis, he says, you got the reputation of being alive, but you're not. And there's actually some of you that aren't one of us. And I'm going to separate the two. And it's going to come at a time when it's going to catch some of you by surprise. But there's some of you that haven't sold your garments. You're going to walk in white with me. And if you don't repent... I'm going to blot your name out of the book. He didn't say that. Well, he kind of did by saying, I, whoever is walking in white with me, I will never blot his name out. Thereby saying, there's a possibility that some will. Because why would Jesus say, I'll never blot your name out if it wasn't a possibility? It'd be an empty threat. Now, some people say, well, Jim, this is kind of like a, 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 some people use the word a litote or a, a double negative. And in other words, he uses an illustration of something that's impossible to say that he'll never do it. Well, if you want to go down that road, I'll let you. But we've got to use all of Scripture. Go with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35. Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 through 35. The nation of Israel has just had the golden calf experience, and God's not too happy about it. 
And in verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned, against, sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the, your book that you have written. Listen to what God says. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I'll visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. All right, folks, what did God say here in the verse 33? Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, we can't twist that one at all. God said, I'll blot them out. Go ahead, Zach. Was that a different That's a really good question. It's a really good question. But the answer to that question is no, because of the fact that for God, even though he's worked in different ways, those things of the spiritual realm continue as the same all the way through. Salvation has been by grace through faith from the beginning to the end. And these types of things. Good question. Stick with me. We haven't gotten to all the scriptures yet. Yes, ma'am. But I'm still thinking that our salvation is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on what we do. It's dependent on what Christ did. Okay, so yeah, I agree with you. Our salvation is not dependent on what we do, but it's dependent on what Christ did. How, how is that tied to what we're looking at here? So he's always holding on to us. It seems to me that how can your, how can your name be blotted in the book of life if, if we're only dependent on him and not on ourselves. Oh, I'm not saying that people can lose their salvation when their names are blotted out. Stick with me here. When you hear blotted out of the book, I'm not saying a saved person can be lost. I'm not saying that at all. So is everyone starting out in the book and then if you don't make a decision to accept Christ as your Savior and you die, then he blots your name out? Yes, but stick with me here. See, her question was, is everyone's name written in the book? But then if you don't make a decision to receive God's forgiveness, your name is blotted out. Yes, but as we read, those whose names were not written in the book before the foundation of the world. Because he knows the beginning from the end. Stick, very good. Stick with me. We're going to let the scripture answer these questions. Go to Psalm 69. But yes, Susan, you're right on track. You're right on track. Go to Psalm 69. Yep. Go to Psalm 69. Look at verses 25 through 28. In Psalm 69, verses 25 through 28, by the way, if you read Psalm 69 all by yourself and just read the whole thing, you'll notice that it's a prophecy about Jesus. I mean, it talks about how in verse 21, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But look at verses 25 through 30. I'm sorry, 25 through 28. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount of the plan I'm sorry, recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add them to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So folks, if we're to be honest with Scripture, and I, there's more. I just have to stop here for the sake of time. If we're to be honest with Scripture, is it possible to be blotted out of God's book of life? Yes. Now. He then said, though, as we already saw in a couple of places in Revelation 13, 
Those whose names were not written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. So how in the world are people's names blotted out, but they were never written in? Here's where I want you to stick with me here. It goes back to this age-old debate that Christians have been fighting over for years between predestination and free will. If you go to one extreme or the other, you're going to end up in a ditch. You got to stay in the middle of the road. I don't know how it works, but I'm going to show you something in Acts 13. Go to Acts 13. I'm going to show you something. I don't know how this works, but the Bible says that it's possible for people's names to be in the book and blotted out. God said, anyone that sins against me, I'm blotting them out of my book. Yet the Bible also says these people that aren't in the book, their names weren't in the book since the foundation of the world. How do we handle that? Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 42 and following. Paul's preaching in this area, and he's preaching in the synagogue in Acts 13, starting in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, listen closely, urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, Paul and Barnabas said to these Jews who were curious about these things about Jesus, he, they said, God's drawing you. Remember, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. They urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, God's drawing you. You better stay in it. But keep reading. The next day, or the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the words of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge for yourselves, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see it? So which is it? Is it that man has a choice? Or is it that man determines who's going to be saved? The answer is yes. Sorry, did I, say, did I say man? Sorry, God determines. The answer is yes. Man has a choice. God determines who's going to be saved. Folks, according to the whole of Scripture, when it comes to this book of life thing, everybody has a choice. And I, I lean toward that if you're born or conceived, because I think life begins at conception, you're put in the book of life. There comes a point where everybody has an opportunity to respond. And for those who have been given that opportunity and reject it, they're erased when they die from the book of the living because they didn't pass, if you will, into what has always been the Lamb's book of life. Hasn't God planned before the foundation of the world the only way anybody would live forever would be through Jesus Christ? This book of the living is the Lamb's book of life. That's the only reason we can keep living is because of Jesus. And because God knows everything before it even happens. By the way, you have seen that, haven't you? He's already telling you how it's all going to play out. Stuff's making so much more sense to us now. God said it thousands and thousands of years ago, all this stuff. That's why when Peter says, I'm never going to deny you, Jesus says, actually, you're going to do it three times before the rooster even crows. You're going to go down into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. He's going to lead you in an upper room. You're going to find it all furnished. Peter, you're going to throw a fishing line into the water. You're going to pull out the first fish you catch. You're going to open its mouth, and there's going to be two coins in there, one for you, one for me, all the way through. God already knows how it's all going to play out. 
That's why he can say those whose names aren't in the book of life. Even though they were in it and blotted out. They never were. It's not predestination in the way that some people teach it. God has not predetermined who will be saved and who won't. The Bible is very clear that everyone has a chance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All the way through scripture, you'll see so many passages that talk that Jesus died, not only for our sins, 1 John 2, but also verse, for the, for the whole, sins of the whole world. The whole world has been forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. The only sin that's not been covered by Jesus' death on the cross is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the Spirit of God draws you to salvation and you don't respond in the affirmative. That's the only thing not covered. And if you reject God's salvation through Jesus Christ, you will then spend eternity separated from Him. The whole world hears, folks. Yet, we've got to be faithful to Scripture too. And those who were appointed for salvation believed. So folks, stay away from the ditches. Stay in the middle. The Bible says that you can be blotted out of his book. Not a believer. He's made the promise to the churches. If you walk with me in white, when we're only be given white robes because of Jesus, I'll never blot you out of my book. We are eternally secure if you're in Christ. But for those who are living, who have not received Jesus, if they sin against him and their sin is not covered by the blood, he's going to blot you out. Oh, by the way, if you're blotted out, you never really were in it because he already knew you weren't going to. Like I say, it makes your head go, you know. But let God be God. Go ahead, Mark. Is it possible to say that every single person is written in the book of life and then everyone that doesn't come to belief is blotted? Yes, that's correct. That's what I'm saying. But the hard part is, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 8, both say they never were in it. But they never were in it because of God's foreknowledge. But that doesn't remove me. I had one man say to me one time, Jim, if God knows what time I'm going to wear tomorrow, I really don't have a choice. And I just say, yes, you do. And I'm going to say something to you folks that I've been saying for years. Some of you have heard me say it. Some of you haven't. God already knows what choice you're going to make tomorrow. But you don't. So make the right choice. <laughs> right? I'm going to say it to you again. God already knows what choice you're going to make tomorrow. That's why Jesus says, I'll know when you live, whether you're going to live for me or whether you're going to die for me. You don't got to stop trying to prove to God how much you love him. Quit killing yourself trying to prove to God how much you love him. He already knows. He knows if you deny him tomorrow, he knows if you die for him tomorrow. He already knows how much you love him. Just love him. But don't let God's foreknowledge move you into fatalism and say, well, what does it make a difference? It doesn't matter. It's already. No, the Bible's very clear that there's a bunch of ifs. If you do this, then I'll bless. If you do this, then I'll curse. And folks, if we didn't have a choice, there would be no ifs in the Bible. There's a ton of ifs. God already knows what choice you're going to make, but you don't. So make the right choice. Make the right choice. Let's keep moving because I want to get to that last cool part. I want to close tonight with Revelation 13, verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So when they say, who's like the beast and who can fight against it, who's empowering the beast? Satan is. So what they're really saying is, who can really fight against Satan? Oh, there's more than Jesus. That's why I can't wait to show you. First and foremost, I'm going to show you there are three groups that can fight against the beast and defeat it. The first one is Jesus himself. Remember, go to Genesis. Well, I'm going to give you some verses for the sake of time and have you look at them later on. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what did God say? The seed of the woman, which is Jesus, is going to crush your head. 
It also says in Revelation, look at, we're there in 13, jump over to chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 3. Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So as powerful as he acts like he's going to be during this time at the end of the tribulation period, he's going to be put into a pit and held there for a thousand years. So who can defeat the beast? Well, there's a mighty angel that's already doing it right now. But Jesus has already defeated him at the cross. Revelation chapter 20, look at verses 7 through 10. After the thousand years are ended, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. 1 John 4.4 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So who can make war against the beast? Who can stand against the beast? Well, we know Jesus can. But there's two other groups. Another one is Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> it says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown in down there with him. So who can stand against him? Jesus can because he's already defeated him. Not only that, the other angels, the good angels fought. Michael and his angels fought against him and they defeated him and threw him down to the earth. He's not allowed back into the presence of God at that time when that happens. But there's a third group. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And that's believers especially these believers during the tribulation period. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Who's able to conquer the beast during this time? The saints during that time who are all going to be killed for their faith. Now let me say something to you folks. You and I have him defeated already because of Jesus. But if we're honest... Doesn't he win some battles every day? I don't know about you, but isn't he win some battles in your life and in my life every day? Because our flesh isn't dead. And that's why we have to lay our bodies, our flesh on the altar every day. But let me say something to you that will help you. They were able to conquer him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony because they didn't love their lives even to death. In other words, when Satan comes after us, what does he tempt us with or cause us to worry about? Things, dying is one, things of this world, right? When this world loses its appeal, he's conquered. He's got nothing on you. He can't make you worried about whether or not you lose your job. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to lack. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
Satan, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to lose my job because you may try to mess with me there, but even if I lose my job, God's going to pay my bills. I'm going to be fine. And that's why we're to put on the whole armor of God. That's why we're in this day. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 7, that we're to resist the devil. But actually, it says something prior to that most of us forget. We're to submit ourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. That's why we're to daily renew our minds. We've got to put our flesh on the altar that's still under the curse and still an area that he can get us. And we need to daily renew our minds to the truth. All through the Hebrew passage in Hebrews chapter 11 of the men and women of faith who were commended for their faith. And many were cut in two. Others were killed by the sword. Others wanders in desert and caves. The world wasn't even worthy of them. All the way through you see they were looking to what was to come, not to hear. And folks, when Satan wins in our life, it's because we get focused on this life. We don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah, but Jim, what about? Trust me. I'm a worrier. People may not know this because of how I come across when God preaches through me. But my wife and my kids will tell you, I'm a forever worrying about what might happen. Or is this taken care of? Have you got gas in your car? Have you got air in your tires? And I'm always trying to make sure everything's under control. But ultimately, how much control do we really have? None. But we also are children of the king who's promised us that he'll take care of us. He didn't promise us that we won't be killed for our faith. Just because he's going to rapture the church doesn't mean that some of us may not die for our faith between now and then. Again, the rapture of the church is not about escaping what's to come. The rapture of the church is just simply when God removes his restraining influence on the earth through the Holy Spirit, he's going to take all the ones he indwell at the same time. And so folks, and I'll get right to you, I want to just challenge you. When they all say, Who's able to stand against the beast? The answer is Jesus has already done it. The angels have already done it. And every believer that dressed in the Lord and doesn't worry about this life does it just as much. Yes, sir. Didn't he warn us that we may give our lives? You, yeah, very much so. He tells us that. Anybody else? Give you a last chance to say something before we wrap it all up. Let me just encourage you. When we get back together, when we get back together next year, we're going to start looking at the rest of this chapter at the false prophet and how not only is there going to be Satan empowering the, the beast, which is the Antichrist, there's also going to be a false prophet who's going to be representing the Antichrist, who's empowered by Satan. I don't know if you all caught this yet or not, but Satan wants to be God so much, he creates his own false trinity. You got God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to see him create at this time Satan who wants to be God the Father, the Antichrist who's going to pretend to be the Son, and the false prophet who's going to be pointing everyone to the Antichrist, which is the Holy Spirit's role to point us to Jesus, isn't it? Satan has got nothing new. He duplicates everything. And we're going to take a look at this false prophet and what's to come. And then I believe we're also going to get into the two witnesses because actually the two witnesses have been doing their work during the first half of the tribulation. I'll show you that. So we haven't gotten to the two witnesses. We've been doing chronologically. It's kind of hard because so many things overlap. But we're going to take a look at the two witnesses because they're going to be killed right around the midpoint of the tribulation as well. And so when we get back together, we're going to take a look at the false prophet and what's going on there, the mortal wound that was healed and how everybody marvels at it. And we're going to deal with who the two witnesses are, because I think the Bible does tell us. It doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong, but I'm going to share with you what I think the Bible actually does show us. 
And it might not be the two people you have been taught all your life. So we'll see you in a few weeks. Take care.